The gist is brought to you by Hiscox Small Business Insurance. Get customized insurance for your business right now. Go to hiscox.com to learn more and to get a free quote. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, May 17th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In uncertain times, the populace cries out for a strong man. In Egypt, there's Hosni Mubarak, described today in the New York Times as a one-time strong man. And now he's a bearded lady. Is he a weak man? Is he a strongish man? I do not know. When it comes to strong man, you either are a strong man, you either are a current strong man, or just leave the phrase alone. In America, we, all right, not you and me, but some yearn for the strength and clarity of a Trump. In Russia, Putin evinces strength, and in the Philippines, he speaks in your voice. Tagalog. His name is Rodrigo Duterte, and he was elected president of the Philippines last week. He will be sworn in next month. And he has already announced his crime-fighting initiative. Here he is. He's speaking in English. Uh, he knew, he knows crime committed with a license uh, for arms must be death. I'll help him out. He says heinous crimes must be met by death. Rape, plus death on a victim must be death penalty. Rape must be the death penalty. Kidnapping, now that's interesting because you know criminology, okay. Kidnapping. It's going to be the death penalty. Tapos with ransom, pinatay ninyo, must be death penalty. Now here though, he gets a little creative. What about... If there's a robbery, a homicide, and a rape together, you know, he already said death for each. So what do you do with a multiple offense? Double the hanging. After hung first, then there will be another ceremony for the second time. Aha. Uh-huh. Double the hanging. He wants to hang them twice. He later went into more detail saying, after you are hanged first, there will be another ceremony for the second time until the head is completely severed from the body. I like that because I am mad. Great. The Philippines will be the only place where executions for murder far outpace murderers. I mean, you could catch one murderer and just hang them over and over and over again until crime comes down. That's how it works, right? Sure, the death penalty is not even legal in the Philippines, hasn't been since 2006, but I could see this plan working. Oh, the Alvarez murder? Well, Gonzalez went to the chair for that. Oh, the Reyes robbery? Well, Gonzalez went to the gallows for that. No, no, not a different Gonzalez, same Gonzalez. We strung him up for the robbery. We fried him for the murder. We gave him the gas chamber for kidnapping, lethal injection for rape. You know, it's really hard to find a vein, but the doctor certified he was dead, and that doctor is a smart guy from Oklahoma. Yeah, we just figure we keep punishing Gonzalez over and over again, and pretty soon that crime wave's gonna come down, right down to zero. What, you don't think re-killing a dead man makes sense? Sounds like someone in the Philippines has been watching Game of Thrones. On the show today, I spiel about the over-injection of context in a news context. But first, Google has banned ads for payday lenders. Disney and the NFL got the governor of Georgia to change his mind on a bathroom ban. And scores of corporations are putting pressure on North Carolina to do the same. When corporations lead a moral charge. So back in the civil rights era, the early 60s, the common tableau was protesters at a Woolworths insisting that that business integrate. 
Cut to today. There's something similar going on with the civil rights struggle of today. Only the thing that's different is the modern equivalent of Woolworths might be telling the town or city, how dare you not let us integrate? Because what we're seeing is corporations putting pressure on municipalities or states like North Carolina saying, you're being discriminatory. We're not going to take our business to you if you discriminate against, in the case specifically that we're talking about, gay or transgendered people. It's an interesting new phenomenon, and James Sirwicky wrote about it in The New Yorker. Jim Sirwicky's here. Hello. Thanks for having me. So is this a weird thing? Is this a problematic thing? How should we think about the fact that we're turning to Pfizer, Microsoft, and Marriott for morals? It's a complicated thing, um, and, and I think it is problematic both for the left and the right. Uh, and it is relatively unusual. During the civil rights movement, there were in individual cities local business leaders who did push the cities to – Integrate is probably overstating it, but to smooth the passage to what they saw as inevitable. And, uh, you know, the phrase about Atlanta was famously the city too busy to hate. And it was this idea that there were new South cities where you had business leaders do it. But they were really reacting to the protests that had already been been done. Right. And their concern was this was making us look very bad and, you know, we biz- chaos is bad for business, et cetera. So was, in a lot of cases, these were multinational or at least national corporations where the rest of America were appalled by what they saw with dogs and Bull Connor and they didn't want to be associated with that. Bo- like, like Coca-Cola in r- Atlanta. Right. So instance. it was both it was both big corporations and it was also sort of smaller local business leaders and uh, and even Woolworths, you know, I think in a lot of cases, uh, you know, the, the Woolworths of the world eventually decided this wasn't worth it. But what we're seeing now is something different, which is that, as you said, it really is the biggest corporations in the world. You're talking about Disney, Pfizer, uh, Apple, et cetera, who are really pressuring – and for the most part, it's been states – to uh, either repeal or, in the case of governors where the law has not been signed, to veto – laws that discriminate in one form or another against uh, gay or transgendered people. And I think the reason it's complicated is twofold. One is, on the left, uh, generally speaking, people are uncomfortable with corporate influence over social policy or economic policy uh, of corporations throwing their weight around to kind of get what they want. And on the right, I think in some ways it's probably even more complicated and and, uh, creates greater tensions. And that is that for evangelical Christians who for 35 years have been part of a uh, Republican coalition, they're really seeing their putative corporate allies basically – uh, in their minds, betray them. And I think for them in particular, it's, it's tough because they don't really have anywhere to go. Well, the way I look at it, I think corporations are behaving as amorally as they ever have. Their morality is the majority, where the majority of the customer is coming from. And when maybe not 1964, but in 1954, segregation was what the majority of Americans and their customers, not even, it didn't even matter the majority of Americans, the majority of paying customers would be fine with segregation. And so Greyhound made people, made black people sit in the back of their buses. But in 2016, the majority of people, all these polls are showing are saying that this is not right what North Carolina is doing with bathrooms. And so they're just making a smart business decision. It has nothing to do with morality. No, I think it's actually uh, – I think it is in general pretty rational. Um, and, and it's not just customers. It's also employees. In mm-hmm. fact, I think that's one of the first things that these companies generally talk about is that uh, you know doing business in a state that's discriminating against uh, gay and transgender people uh, makes it – Harder for them to hire people, and higher for them, uh, harder for them to actually keep people, uh, because people don't want to work in states where where that's the case. 
I also do think, though, that you also have seen a shift, particularly on these issues in corporate America. So Tim Cook being publicly out, um, all of these things, you are seeing a sense in which uh, this kind of discrimination, which I think even I would literally say five or six years ago would not have been seen as a big deal to most corporations, uh, is now seen really as, I think, completely unacceptable. Well, I think much of it must also be that the corporate hierarchy, and in some cases, just like almost everyone probably who works for a place like Pay. PayPal or Microsoft, they went to certain schools, they grew up in certain milieus, and it wasn't the conservative Christian homeschooling anti what became, you know, anti-transgender communities. If if America is siloed, the corporate business leaders are of the silo that's more progressive. No, I think that's absolutely right. I think, um, well, more progressive on social issues, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily on economic ones. And that's where the tension comes from on the left, I think. The great example, uh, the most most sort of concrete example of corporation throwing its weight around was Disney, which when Georgia passed the law, um, basically under this guise of religious freedom uh, that discriminated against gay people and and trans people, Disney basically said, we are going to pull our business. And Georgia has become a huge center of movie production. So something like $5 billion a year. And if you think about Disney, yeah, I mean, Disney, obviously, family values, et cetera. But, but Disney is a company that uh, is thoroughly, I think, invested in sort of progressive values. I mean, think about Hollywood in general. I mean, that's not a place that's going to be very comfortable with that kind of discrimination. But Disney has long had family days that uh, welcomed gay Absolutely. families into them. And the Christian right was often tied up in knots with Disney because their product was so embraced by Christians. Right. And yet they would have, you know, gay-friendly family days at the parks. No, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, they're a company that really, I think, has been aggressive on these issues for a long time. And so I think that, you know, what Georgia, what Georgia's governor did was basically say, okay, I don't care what the people of Georgia think, I'm going to veto this bill. And that I think is, you know, that to me was, was a big part of what was interesting about this story is that when corporations do that over, let's say, economic issues, or when they threaten to leave in order to get subsidies, that's generally something that uh, the left is very unhappy with. But in this case, I think you could argue that corporations are actually on the vanguard of this struggle. I mean, they actually, I think, are putting much more pressure because you're not seeing big demonstrations and, and boycotts um, on a on a sort of uh, individual level. It's really companies that are that are uh, leading this fight. When the corporations do this, do you think they're really forcing a governor's hand that the governor is saying, wow, I'm really going to hurt my state? Or are they more giving uh, a Republican governor cover that they can appeal to constituents or maybe even appeal to that governor's intellect and sense of values so he could point to this as a reason that he's doing it? Um, I think it's... And by uh, the way, the governors like Deal the, or many of the other ones, the through line between ones that have kind of gone against legislation that have tried to enact anti-trans and anti-gay rules is they're not up for re-election. And right. the ones that are up for re-election kowtow, like right. McRory in North Carolina. Right. So I think that it's it's I think it's twofold. Um, I think in in some cases it lets governors uh, do what they want to do or would like to do but are afraid to do because of political pressure. And then I think but I think there are also cases probably where uh, governors uh, who otherwise would be content to have that law pass, uh, basically feel the need to do it. South Dakota is an interesting example because there you had banks, actually, which obviously are big in South Dakota. Because um, they have almost no regulation. Right, so exactly. South Dakota and <laughs> exactly. Delaware in a race to the bottom not to regulate banks. Exactly, so. exactly. So they put pressure uh, to, to change one of these bathroom laws. It was, I think it was for college students. Um, and you know, I, I think that in the absence of that the law probably would have gone through, but um, it certainly does provide cover for Republicans to do this. 
in general, let's broaden it out. You know, like you say, on the left, there are people who are very uncomfortable with uh, putting the words corporations and morality in the same sentence. Yet the big new corporations are no longer our fossil fuel extractors. They're Apple and Facebook and companies that are not only uh, socially more progressive, but in many ways also just more progressive, period. You know, I'm kind of of the opinion that that horse has gone out of the barn. And the important thing is that if you marry businesses to morality, let's just hope the businesses have a good morality. Well, I think it's interesting because I do think that one of the things you've seen is obviously, I think it's fair to say that certainly like companies like Google and, and, uh, Facebook, Apple's probably a more complicated example if you think about what they do in China and, and places like that. Right. It'd be hard to call their economic vision exactly progressive, I think. But then again, if if Zuckerberg, well, okay, let's not impute him, but if Google and Facebook needed a physical product that yes. could only be made profitably by the Chinese, yes. what do you think they would no, do? No, no, no. Well, I think you're right. But that's what, I, in a way, I think that's right. They have a certain kind of advantage because of their business structure, mm-hmm. I think is exactly. Hey, it's an algorithm. Way. Yes. Yeah. But I do <laughs> you think. You don't have to farm it right, out. Right, exactly. Slave labor. Yeah. But I do think one of the things that's interesting is that you are seeing, obviously, in the last five or six years, a lot of corporations that are explicitly writing kind of good behavior into their charters. So these are companies that uh, sometimes call themselves benefit corporations where they're guaranteeing that they're going to dedicate a certain percentage of their profits to social causes, et cetera. And companies have always, you know, given to charity, et cetera. But I think this is a little different. And I do think, uh, you know, what's interesting, of course, is you have this at the same time as if you look at the Sanders campaign, anti-corporate sentiment is probably stronger than ever in a kind of explicit way. Um, well, not stronger than ever. Stronger than it's been in a long time, I think, in the Democratic Party. So, you know, you are seeing, you are seeing, I think, a kind of interesting tension there between it. And to me, though, like I said, I think the real, the 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 bigger issue in some ways is on the right, um, because conservative Christians they can't go to the Democratic Party, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they know that's not home for them. They don't necessarily feel the way that you know supply side economists do about the economy. So, in a lot of ways, I think those people really feel like they don't really have a home right now um, in the Republican Party or in the Democratic Party. They could just withdraw from public life. Well, there are there is a whole movement. I mean, that's what evangelical Christians historically did until 1980, really, until the emergence of the Moral Majority. And there is actually a burgeoning movement among conservative Christians to actually do precisely that kind of tend your own garden and and remove yourself from this inevitably compromised and corrupt world, basically. Be worldly, but not of this world. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so don't be evil in the uh, Google Google, Google yeah. creed. Is that at all meaningful? Ah, <laughs> uh, I, I do think it has guided Google in certain ways in terms of of what they've been willing to do and and not willing to do. But I, I think most people see it as. Uh, I don't think there's any harm to it. So I don't buy the kind of like, this is a way of Google co-opting. I think it's a way for Google to try to say to itself, this is what we're trying to do. This is a thing to keep in mind. I think the the problem is that we don't really know how Google would react when things got, if things got really tough. It's probably easier to, to not be evil if you're you know, one of the most profitable companies in the world. Well, all these companies that we're talking about, they have the profit margin that allows them to do good. The same thing has been said about, you know, all their family-friendly policies. Extremely profitable companies could do that. I don't think Carrier Air Conditioner famously left Indiana because they had the wiggle room not to leave Indiana. No, I think that's right. I think it, it makes a huge difference if you're able to do that. It also makes a huge difference, as you alluded to, about 
uh, you know, what kind of product you're making. If you're not making hardware, if you're not making physical products that have to be made on an assembly line, it's obviously a lot easier to do that smoothly than uh, and, and less evilly than, than if you do. Can I ask you something? Do you know Zuckerberg? Have you interviewed I've never, him? Uh, I've met him maybe once or twice, but I've yeah. never interviewed him. We did a bit on the show where I played large portions of the recent speech he gave. It's the first time I ever really saw him speak for 40 minutes. Heart in the right place, but a child. He just seems like – I know he's 31 and 31 is the new 21, but he just seems like a naive child. Um, and Bill Gates, maybe just because he's older, maybe it's generational, whatever. He's doing real good in the world that takes into account the fact that, you know, things aren't always unicorns and puppies. I don't know if Zuckerberg has at all a sophisticated take on anything other than his algorithm and his business. The one, <laughs> the, the one thing I would say is I do think he is young. I think Gates probably when he was 30 – I wouldn't say he sounded similar. Gates comes from a sim- from a different background, I guess. But uh, but I do think that Gates has really evolved in a really powerful way. I think Gates's sense of the world is at this point a pretty sophisticated one. His sense of what the real problems in the world is very sophisticated. I, I think Zuckerberg is an absolutely extraordinary manager. I think he's done an absolutely amazing job with that company. Uh, his view of where the internet is taking us and of what the world is like right now does often sound to me as if he just maybe hasn't read the paper enough on yeah, some level. Yeah, as long as we connect people and we get them talking. No, no. There are tribes who want to kill each other. There are limited resources in these places. Yeah. There's radical ideologies. It's not just about giving someone an IM option. Yeah, no, I think the idea that connectivity uh, is the route to solving all problems, and and that's an exaggeration, but to some degree that does so- sound like what he sounds like a lot yeah. of the time. Uh, I think that's just... The interesting question is I never really know... Is that just part of a message or is that something he actually believes in his heart? I tend to think it's probably the latter, actually. Yeah. Taking us under the hoodie is Jim Serwicki. Thank you, Jim. No problem. It takes courage to build a small business. Don't risk what you've worked so hard for. Protect your small business today with Hiscox. Hiscox offers a new way to buy small business insurance. They tailor their small business insurance coverage to fit your needs, allowing you to buy only what you need. Policies start from $22.50 a month. Plus, it's easy. You can order online or over the phone from a licensed advisor in minutes. Don't wait to purchase coverage for your small business. Visit Hiscox.com slash Slate today to learn more about what Hiscox can offer your small business and to get a free quote. That's H-I-S-C-O-X dot com slash Slate. And now the spiel, three, two, one, context. The other day I was listening to NPR discuss politics. There was Cokie Roberts, seasoned commenter. She knows the NPR style. She was joined by Kathleen Parker, experienced, done a lot of TV, but on occasion here on this NPR interview had to be reminded not to leave the audience behind. Uh, They talk about people um, like Ben Sass, who is somebody, uh, you know, he's clearly a rising star and someone to watch. 
Thank you, Koki. <laughs> no, I don't think that Kathleen was offended that Koki waded in to say context, context, because context is what we tune to NPR for. I mean, what if people were walking around not knowing what state Ben Sass was from or not knowing if he was even a senator instead of, say, the middle linebacker for the Arizona Cardinals? This stuff matters. A little later, same interview, a reference to Tony Perkins flies out of Parker's mouth and again, Koki swoops in. You know, how else can Tony Perkins uh, send out email blasts asking for $5 donations? You have to have something uh, to sink your teeth into, and, and people Family probably Research are... Research Council. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. <laughs> Family Research Council. If we didn't say that, you'd be saying, why is a noted Washington Post columnist referring to the deceased star of Psycho by a nickname and saying he's now a conservative activist? It wouldn't make sense. And Parker, good-naturedly, thanked Roberts for contextualizing what she did. And I think we all thank her, except I don't thank her. Sure, I thank Koki. Koki's great. But the whole thing kind of drives me crazy. Sometimes you need it, right? There's, there's a point where you got to say Moogfest, named for Bob Moog, the inventor of the Moog organ. Sure, yes, that makes sense. But two days ago, the actress Madeline LeBeau died. She was in Casablanca. The BBC had a 10-sentence obit. French actress Madeline LeBeau, the last surviving cast member of the 1942 film Casablanca, has died at the age of 92. Ten sentences in this whole obit, and one sentence was used to explain this. In the film, Bogart plays an American cafe owner in Morocco, a territory controlled by France's Nazi collaborationist regime. He must choose between his love for a woman and helping her husband escape Casablanca to continue fighting the Nazis. Really? We need a plot summary to Casablanca? Perhaps the greatest and most known movie of all time without it, readers would be disoriented? They couldn't get by in the obit with, the, I don't understand, who is this person? Was that a movie? Does it just mean White House in a different language? Kazahuka? Huh. There is no place like home, as was famously mentioned in The Wizard of Oz. In that film, Kansan Dorothy Gal finds herself traveling to an Emerald City, accompanied by three unlikely companions. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, the central figure in Christian theology, often depicted as a skinny, bleeding Caucasian. I call this whole thing, this contextualization craze, Bono lead singer of U2-itis, because I actually heard that once in an interview. The guest made a reference to Bono, and the host butted in, thinking he needed to say, lead singer of U2. Thank you, Captain Context. Although, let's be fair, sometimes it helps, right? I think I could have used this technique in the 80s, as a guide to the often esoteric comedy stylings of Dennis Miller. What's with this kabuki shit, Twyla? Kabuki, highly stylized Japanese dance drama known for expressive masks. The prominent dance choreographer Twyla Tharp, known for blending genres in her own quirky idiom. Loosen up, Mummenchance. Get a limbo stick, okay? Swiss theater troupe Mummenchance, whose often surreal works relies on mask props and pantomime. And a few years later, after I processed, thanks to the context, processed Dennis Miller, maybe I'd be listening to the perhaps obscure lyrics straight out of the House of Pain. American tennis player, winner of seven men's singles Grand Slam titles. Casual reference to domestic abuse, regrettable. Euphemism for lyrical wordplay. The Psalms, the third section of the Hebrew Bible, and a book of the Christian Old Testament. Indeed, this song alone has 30 rhymes, including Schwarzenegger, rhymed with As If My Name Was Sega. The album that it's on has 17 songs, 18 if you include the Pete Rock remix of Jump Around. 
House of Pain put out three studio albums. Everlast as a solo act put out eight. So yes, the number of rhymes he has does greatly exceed the 150 Psalms in the Hebrew Bible. Though some could argue he picked an intentionally low bar. Although it was better than rhyming, I make the fellas shout, I make the ladies swoon, I got more rhymes than Jupiter's got moons, because Jupiter has 63 confirmed moons. There are other popular songs that could be given the Bono lead singer of U2 treatment, but sometimes copious contexting might seem excessive. To wit. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees. And marmalade skies Because you're on drugs Somebody calls you You answer quite slowly A girl with colliders go by She's on drugs Drugs. To do drugs. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. LSD. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Lysergic acid diethylamide. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Drugs. They're all drugs. It's all about drugs. All right. So we've handled the highbrow, the lowbrow, the spaced outbrow. But, you know, the context police can also be used to kick down the doors of the greatest American rhetoric ever. I mean, there are some speeches we think of as great, but imagine how much greater they'd be with a ton of context. It'd sound like this. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. The Granite State, admitted to the Union June 21st, 1788. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Highest point, Mount Marcy. Interestingly, lower than the highest point of three of the other four states mentioned in this paragraph. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Highest point, Mount Davis in Elk Lick Township. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. This reference predates the existence of the Colorado Rockies NHL franchise by 13 years and the baseball franchise of the same name by another 17. Let freedom ring from the crevaceous slopes of California. Which includes Mount Whitney, the highest point in the contiguous United States in the southern terminus of the John Muir Trail. Now, we should note that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, doctorate received in theology, Boston University, 1955, went on to say some other memorable things that day, which if time permitted, we'd get into and helpfully provide more context for. Then, of course, what happened with him was he was martyred. That date was 4-4-68, which you may recall from the U2 song Pride in the Name of Love. Those lyrics were written by Bono which is the stage name of Paul Hewson. He is the lead singer of U2. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the Gist's producer. It means she cuts books and records interviews, as well as telling the host what he's breathing too hard into the mic. Mary Wilson also edits the Gist, which means she does all that stuff Andrea does, but isn't quite bold enough yet to tell the host to back away from the damn mic. It's not an ice cream cone. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. They're like radio shows, but when you want to listen, but without the possibility of being the sixth caller for Sticks tickets. And Andy Bauer's job with the Panoply Network is chief content officer. Yeah, we don't know what that means either. The Gist. It's a six-episode podcast about crocheting that ended in 2007, but still confuses some of my older family members not familiar with podcasting. 
Umperu de Peru du Peru. You look it up. Thanks for listening.